consultant, editor-in-chief of the Independent New York City's Lefty Newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. Our February print edition is still out in the streets across the city in our red-white news boxes in more than 60 public libraries, independent bookstores, cafes, and etc. I'm excited to welcome back my co-host, Amma Gagarian, who was in Egypt for much of the past two months. Hi, John. It's great to be back, and it's great to be here with all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. For today's show, we're going to hear from tenants in Flatbush who are fighting back against one of the city's worst slumlords. And in the second half of the show, we'll talk about the Build Public Renewables Act. It would dramatically increase the amount of renewable energy New York produces, which recently sailed through the state Senate, but still has some important hurdles to clear. Our guest will be State Senator Kristen Gonzalez, a socialist who represents part of Western Queens, North Brooklyn, and Manhattan's east side. We're also going to be sharing a very special phone number with you that you can use to sign up as a WBAI buddy and help keep this historic radio station broadcasting across the New York City region. So stay tuned for that. Amba, before we dive into all of this, uh, I've been dying to hear a little bit more about your time in Egypt. Uh, What were a couple of things you learned while you were there that uh, most surprised you? Well, it was um, an all-encompassing trip. I was there for about two months, and I did a lot of family uh, visiting, family and friends, as well as uh, lots of history and sort of some tourism. And then I was just living there in Cairo. And um, I think that uh, something that impressed me was both the sort of stark similarity between Cairo and New York and then the stark contrast. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to describe because I found myself all the time simultaneously thinking it's so much like New York and it's so different from with New York. With the hustle and bustle and all with of that. With the hustle and bustle. And it just really speaks to what it's like living in a globalized world. You know, we have cities of millions of people. Cairo has 23 million people. The, the density is higher than it is is in New York, so there really are people everywhere. Um, there's not a ton of public space, uh, dead like parks like we have. I think they have like two squared meters per person, which is pretty little if you look that up. Um, so people are just congregating publicly everywhere. Um, and uh, and so in that way, the, there's the hustle and the bustle of the city and the zahma, which means everything's crowded. People are always saying, oh, there's zahma. Um, but then culturally, it's very different. You know, it's, um, it's a Middle Eastern country. It's, it's a Muslim country. People are 80% Muslim. And, uh, so it's the first time that I've been in, in a fully, um, in the Muslim world. And, uh, some of the things were to be expected. I, you know, heard the prayer every day. It was beautiful. Um, Lots of women had their hair covered, but also lots didn't. In Egypt, you can sort of choose. Um, you, you can choose. The Sharia law doesn't require women to to cover themselves. So it was just interesting sort of navigating that, having some things that I thought about being there uh, um, to come about and others and others not. Um and I think one thing that I would speak to is definitely the sort of calmness that I felt there uh, and the calmness, I think, of the Middle East in general. I mean, this is another dichotomy, right, because the Middle East is war-torn and has been for a long time, but still 
Um, the people are not war torn, which is kind of interesting because in other countries that I've been, you do see the people reflecting sort of what's going on in civil society. But I don't know if it's the fact that there's been society there for so long or the Nile or what, but, um, there was this strange calmness that sort of permeated the whole entire city. And I, I, I don't have the words to exactly describe it yet, but it was very interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, it's fascinating just to hear a little bit about that. Um, and we're delighted to have you back. Um, and, um, also, uh, you're going to be on the move again this weekend, though not going nearly far as away. Uh, can you briefly uh, tell us about, uh, where you're headed next? Yes, briefly. I'll be in Atlanta. Um, many of our listeners may have heard there's been an ongoing movement in the Atlanta forest. Um, um, in southern Atlanta near DeKalb County, uh, for a year and a half, there have been protesters basically in ca- staying and ca- camping out in woods as a part of an ongoing protest movement against this giant cop training facility that would not only train uh, cops in and around Atlanta, but from all over the world. There's even reports that soldiers from the IDF would be trained there. It'd be the largest cop training facility in the U.S., and it's a definite backlash to the George Floyd uprising. And so there's been a lot of activists who are concerned about that, camping out in the woods things escalated in january they're trying to start demolition and a protester was shot by the police and so there's a convergence there this weekend um stop cop city so i'll be there and uh, you can follow the independent to hear from me about that probably in our next issue and this protester uh, their name was uh tortuguita and Tortuguita, and they, yeah. they were killed uh, uh by the police mm-hmm. uh, the police are trying to blame uh, Tortuguita and his fellow protesters for for their own violence. Right, absolutely. Sorry if I sort of brushed over that. It was Manuel Toran, known as Tortuguita, and uh, it's pretty clear by the cop cam footage that Tortuguita did not have a gun. Right. Well, it's great that you're going to be down there. I know you've been in touch with folks um, in the Cop City movement, uh, even while, when you were in Egypt. So uh, it's great you're going to be following up on all those connections you've already uh, made. Um, but, um, I, we, we've got a, a great segment to kick off the show today. Yes, we do. I'm excited to jump right into it. We're going to be joined um, from some great tenant organizers and active tenants with Flatbush Tenants Coalition. So the tenants of 1111 Ocean Avenue, a 102-unit, six-story building in Flatbush, Brooklyn, announced a lawsuit last week against their landlord, Sam Wasserman, demanding immediate repairs to their apartments and an end to years of harassment and very bad conditions. The building now has a record 572 open violations, which is a lot, including 157. <laughs> so I'm looking at a lot of these buildings, I can say that's really a lot, including 157 immediately hazardous conditions that include years old leaks and massive ceiling collapses. For example, on October 13th, a ceiling collapsed in a children's bedroom in the middle of the night, raining down concrete plaster and debris. And thankfully, Somehow the children were not there that night, so they're okay. But that was the fourth ceiling collapse over last year. And the city has allowed a vacate order for part of the building to go unfixed now for four years. As families are battling rampant mold, leaks, vermin, and other conditions that we will talk about. 
So with support from the Flatbush Tenant Coalition, tenants at 1111 Ocean Avenue have been fighting now for nearly a decade, and 16 of them have been on rent strike for over two years. We are very happy to happy to be joined by three of the rent strikers who are some of the most active members in the Tenant Association at that building, 1111 Ocean Avenue. So here we are with Phyllis McQueen, Rita Ketchelis, and Janice Brody. So welcome, Phyllis, Rita, and Janice, to the Independent News Hour on WBAI. Hi. Hi. And I'm sorry, Rita, if I mispronounced your last name. It's okay. <laughs> but but I, I'm going to start with you here. So, so, Rita, you moved into the building 48 years ago. Tell us a little bit about your experience there and how conditions have deteriorated over time and then how you finally decided to start a tenants association. Well, uh, when I moved into the building, it was a luxury building. We had a doorman, we had superintendent, um, handyman, quarters, uh, laundry rooms. It was a luxury building. And it remained that way until the building was sold from Kellner and Livingston to the Wassermans. At that time, they converted the building into a co-op to circumvent stabilization. After that happened, we began to lose all of our, all of our, um, all of our, um, service. all of our services. I couldn't think of the word. We were losing all of our services. They took away the doorman. They took away everything, everybody except the super. And he was left to attend to the 102 units in the building. Wow. And at that time, when, and it, and things continued to deteriorate until gentrification. At that time, they spruced up the building a little bit. They gave it a little paint job on the inside of the hallways. They put new doors up, uh, changed the lighting just a little bit. And then um, after that, nothing. Uh, after, the, after the building kind of settled with their tenants, the building started to go down, really go down. And and it just continued to go down, and, and we lost more and more services, and that's where we are now. And that was about eight years ago, right, when the, the conditions really began sort of notably just, just declining? Um. Well, what happened prop, uh, before that, we had been on a rent strike. Right. Not a rent strike. Mm. We had a rent reduction. Okay. We had a rent reduction because of the loss of services from about, I'd say, not, 18, uh, 19, um, 1990 till about 2016. And at that time, when they spruced up the building a lot, the DHCR said that they were entitled to their money and everybody, you know, got a rent increase. And then what led you to start organizing the Flatbush Tenant Coalition, Rita? Well, they put the scaffolding up. And when they put the scaffolding up, um, first I was annoyed about the, the rent increase because I didn't feel that they were entitled to it. But when they put the scaffolding up, I called the landlord and he told me that he was looking into it and it would probably take about two weeks. And that was eight years ago. And, um, at that time I decided to go, you know, to look for some kind of uh, assistance. 
and I um, gathered a group of the of the stabilized tenants, and we went to the Flatbush Coalition, mm-hmm. and they have been guiding us and helping us and teaching us our rights and encouraging us, and um, that's where we are now. Right. Great. That's the Flatbush Tenant Coalition that um, Rita, Janice and Phyllis are are all uh, members of. But so we're also joined by Phyllis, who has been in the building for 43 years, also a very long resident. And Phyllis recently, unfortunately, had a surgery where her vocal cords had to be removed. But we're still very happy to have you here with us, Phyllis. And so we're going to have Rita just briefly speak on Phyllis's behalf and explain a bit about Phyllis's um, situation in the building and complaints and how that that actually ties into her current health situation. Okay. Um, Phyllis has been here for a very long time and she's watched the building deteriorate. And in her apartment, she's had an infestation of roaches and mice and mold. And because of her health issues, I think that her health issues have been heightened by the fact that there's mold and the, the landlord has been aware of her condition and nobody ever does anything about it. They, it just, things just get worse in the building. And that's the unfortunate part. And finally, um, because we're in court now, um, they, they are sending people to take care of different issues in, in, uh, Phyllis's apartment, things that should have been addressed many years ago. And I think that that has had a big, uh, effect on her health. Right. As other, as other tenants as well, because we have elderly in the building. We, you know, there's, there's so much mold in the building. And this is something that nobody is paying any attention to. And they, they paint over it like mold is, like mold is nothing. And it's definitely not mold can absolutely lead to varying serious health effects. But Phyllis, would you like to add anything to that about your situation here? Any comments? No. That's not fixing the problems because we got them in court. All right. She said they just they just only started fixing the problems because they got them in court. Right. And, and Janice said, Brody, you moved into 1111 Ocean Avenue nine years ago. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what your ex- uh, experience was when you moved in and, and how you got involved in tenant organizing later on? Oh, yeah, I think you're muted, Janice. It's okay. I'm sorry. Um, I'm no problem. In 2009, I um, noticed after two or three months that something was wrong. Um, I never saw a porter, never saw a janitor, never saw anyone mop the floor. The elevators was filthy. I mean, I've, our elevators are metal. So you see every nook and cranny and everything that was spilled, what wasn't cleaned out. So it took me uh, a moment to realize that there was something wrong. And I started noticing issues in my apartment. Um, I have a bad roach infestation. And when I don't know how I got connected with FTC, but when I did attend a meeting, I met Phyllis and I met Rita. And then, you know, they already had a tenants association 
they were, you know, getting off the ground and um, I joined with them. But what I do notice about this building that I couldn't believe it was a co-op. I literally had to type in the address. And when I typed in the address, there's an article in the New York Times back in 1989 that was they did an article on the buildings in the neighborhood that were going co-op. And they actually listed for they actually had 11, 11, 11 Ocean in there. And they said at the time they would need to have done one point one million in renovations to bring it up to something to for somebody who would want to buy. So in today's dollars, that's like six or seven million dollars. And HPD had taken them to court and I found that through HPD, they don't have any money. So for you to be a co-op, you're collecting these rents and you actually have a couple of owners. You have the rent stabilized tenants. So an ordinary co-op would have that money going towards the maintenance of the building. They're keeping every dollar is going in their pocket. So when we talk about issues in the building, practically every other tenant has an issue with leaks in their kitchen or either in their bathroom. There's big mold issues in that area. Every other tenant. I mean, we had one tenant that emailed us and said in one week he caught like five mice. We have pictures of rats. We have um, the terraces are literally crumbling. The concrete is hitting the ground. We have uh, scaffolding that's been up now. 2023 will be eight years. Wow. So we have the Department of Buildings. We have HPD. We're trying to get the new the state attorney general involved because this building is not being managed. The money is being pocketed. How does it impact your quality of life to have the scaffolding there year after year for eight years? Um, you have to you have to look up every time you're going out because it impacts. You can't see outside. I can't see the street. I can't see the sidewalk. I don't know if there's something going on outside. If I have to exit the building, we have, it's, it's like, it seems like we have like a wall around us Mm -hmm. and and we are not able to um, (laughs) see anything. If you wanted to watch your child go to school across the street, you can't. Excuse me. I also wanted to add in, I have a terrace that I have not been able to use for years and the reason that it's so upsetting is because, like Janice said, you cannot see the street. They, I was away, and they, when I came home, they had boarded up my terrace door, which has literally locked me into my apartment. In case of a fire, there are wooden bars like, like an X from the top of the door to the bottom of the door that I cannot get out of the, out of the door in case of a fire. The scaffolding so, so, is all around the building. So you can't even get onto the fire escape. Oh, so they have it. They have it just so that it's that the fire department has allowed them to leave it. But I have, health issues, which prevents me from climbing out of the window. So I would have a problem in case there was a fire. And, and, and Rita, tell us about then deciding to go on rent strike two years ago. Um, and Janice, feel free to chime in if, if you want and how you, how you all decided to do that and what that's been like with holding rent. 
Well, after paying rent for so many years and still watching the building deteriorate, we just got together and said that it's foolish for us to pay rent. What are we paying the rent for? We're paying for rent. We're paying rent for services that we are not getting. And if we go on a rent strike, perhaps this will get their attention. Maybe they will do something. So we waited and waited. And we have been on the rent strike in June. It will be three years. And they don't even ask for the money because they know that they're wrong. When we went on rent strike, we was very specific on what we wanted. We wanted to see the elevators repaired. Um, right now, the elevator near me makes a, a lot of noise. And I know when the noise gets loud, it's about to break. When it hits the floor, it bounces, um, it jerks violently. One of the other things we asked is that you give the tenants leases because when they went co-op, every um, rent regulation went out the window. So right. when they when they get a new tenant in, they give them that lease, but you don't get another one. So right now I'm at their peril. And we also ask for we we have the rent deposits. We don't know where it's at. We don't get a statement or anything of that nature. When we went on strike, there was a total of about three hundred and forty three violations. Right now they up to over five hundred. I believe it's around five seventy something. So that is why we, I mean, we're wondering, like. If we're holding all this money, and trust me, it's adding up to six figures and may even hit seven, you would want your money, but they're not taking us to court. But uh, y'all are now taking them to court. You uh, launched a lawsuit uh, last week against the landlord, uh, Sam Wasserman. Uh, What do you, uh, uh, maybe Janice will start with you and then Rita. um, What what do y'all hope will come of this this lawsuit? Um, to get on record that we need the agencies to step up and do their part. I mean, HBD has taken them to court, but the bottom line is they gave them a certain amount of days to make repairs that they haven't done in the past six years. They also fined them and they gave them a payment plan to even pay the fines. So what we're looking for, like we said, we need porters. You can't have in the person we have right now because our the super we have previously passed away. The person we have right now is part-time, is there in, in, in name only. So we have no one there to manage the 100 and some apartments. We're looking to, when, when COVID hit, you would think they would, it's a co-op. I've been in condos and co-ops during COVID. There were signs up. There were people wiping down handles. We had none of that. It was the Tenants Association who put up signs asking people to wear masks and stay six feet apart. So what we're looking for is we want a management, someone to come in and manage the building, get the roof repaired. Practically every other apartment on the sixth floor has a leak or their, their ceiling has caved in. We have a plenty of ceiling cave-ins. Mine caved in. We have a woman at 2 o'clock in the morning, a family, that the ceiling caved in, half the ceiling caved in in their children's bedroom. When mine caved in, it sounded like a bomb went on. So I could imagine at two in the morning, if half your ceiling caved in, what that sounded like. They do not. It's like it goes in one ear and out the other. But they will collect the money. One time they came in when we were on our rent strike and they had to come in and do something with the ceiling because there was a leak in my bathroom. After it was fixed, they actually, the guy, he was like, well, Janice, can you give me some money? And I was like, we sent the letter. We sent our demands of what we wanted. And I can't do that until that is met. Right. 
And this is, I mean, this is, this is law. You have the right to, to rent strike. You have the right to withhold rent. You know, it's not even necessarily political action. I mean, it is now, but you have the right to withhold rent when the repair, when the disrepair is, is that bad. So we need to go here in, in one minute, but I just wanted to uh, leave you guys with uh, the opportunity to make any closing comments um, or any uh, requests of the audience. Well, I, I think that this is really a, um, a political issue. Um, I think I, I don't see what the elected officials are doing. The, we have been in touch with the attorney general's office, and they say that it's the shareholders that holds things up. But in all of these years, that the shareholders have gotten what they have put into this building. At this point, there are so many violations. There's no equity for the shareholders. So I don't understand why the attorney general's office is not doing anything and why the Department of Buildings is not doing anything. They continue to allow them to get violations, but nobody goes to jail. Nobody is ever held accountable for what they are not doing. It's just not fair the way they are mistreating the citizens. It's not fair. Absolutely. Janice, last words, 30 seconds, and then we'll wrap up here. Um, I would love to see new management. I would love to let everyone to come in and just stand outside that building and figure out how can someone say that this is a co-op? How can someone say that they're, they're, they're on it and they're proud of that? I mean, my first job, the first thing they told me is like, if you put your name on it, you own it, be proud of it. There's no way the Wassermans can say they're proud of what's going on in that building mm. and that they should be co- co- um, collecting rent for it. Well, with that, it's a wrap. But thank you so much, Phyllis, Janice, and Rita for joining us from Flatbush Tenants Coalition with the Tenant Association at 1111 Ocean Avenue. It was great to have you. And we're going to go to a short musical break, and then we'll be right back. Thank you. صلي وسلم على سيدنا محمد الفاتح لما أقلق والخاتم لما سبق ناصر الحق بالحق والهادي إلى صراطك المستقيم اللهم صلي وسلم على الحبيب المعظم اللهم صلي وسلم على الحبيب المعظم
That was Nadine by Maluma. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, Ambigir Garyan, here with my co-host, John Tarleton. Yes, uh, Amba, um, it's, it's good to be back for the second half of our show. And, uh, I just want to ask you, uh, one more question for now about your uh, time in Egypt these past couple of months. What was it like living in a country where, uh, media that is in opposition to the government isn't, uh, allowed to exist? Well, um, it's definitely frustrating to be like oh i want to look at this or i want to look at that and then you you know you go to certain websites and um you just can't access them middle east eye you can't access media Masr, which now is a great time to shout them out it's um Masr is is how you say egypt in arabic m-a-s-r media they that's like a great opposition network but they operate from outside of the country so being able to operate here in new york as a strong opposition network and by opposition i just mean critical right critiquing what's going on in the hands of power and we're able to do so and people are able to access us you know very easily that's that is um a big uh, I don't know if it's a gift, but it's something that we should be grateful for and that doesn't exist in, in a lot of the world and is rare even here because we really are the only station of our kind, um, on the air here at WBAI. And, and while we might not have like, you know, um, sort of just like outright government censorship, we basically have that at the hands of corporate media where they've bought up 90% of media and those are mouth boxes for them and where we exist in that 10%. So, um, I'm definitely grateful for WBAI and to be a part of the opposition media. And I hope that our listeners can agree with me and support us because boy, do we need it. So please, if you want to support, Freedom of Speech Radio, a unique, you know, sort of bastion of democracy, independent radio, do so. You can call in by doing that, and I'll give you that phone number. It's 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950. Or you can do it online if you prefer at the website, give the number to WBAI.org. So that's give numeral two, WBAI.org, and you can donate um, once or you can become a WBAI buddy um, and and do- donate to us monthly. But please support the station that you listen to. It's very important. Right. And again, uh, that number is 212-209-2950. And uh, we want to um, emphasize it. We'd be especially grateful for people who can sign up today to become WBAI buddies. Um, you know, Amy, you're talking about whether having this station was a, a gift. I mean, in, in a literal sense, it was. It was the, the owner of the station gave the license to the Pacifica Radio Network. His name was Louis Schweitzer in 1960. But the reason we still have this station 63 years later is because of the extraordinary a support it's gotten from its listeners over the years. I mean, we, uh, you know, there's been so many struggles to keep uh, WBAI on the air and, and listeners are always essential to that. And uh, when people become WBAI buddies, that's one of the most uh, essential ways you can support the station. You can become a WBAI buddy uh, for as little as $10 a month. Uh, you can help keep, you know, all sorts of great uh, programming uh, on the air. Uh, the independent news hour, you get to hear uh, the voices of, of the 
tenants, like we just uh, heard, uh, we're going to, um, in our first segment, in a few minutes, we're going to hear, uh, from the, uh, youngest, uh, female state senator in New York history, who's also a socialist fighting for uh, renewable energy and, uh, and on many other good things in New York. And you're not going to, these voices are marginalized in most of the rest of the media. Places Absolutely. Like the, the independent WBAI are essential. And, um, you know, and now that you're, you're back in New York and kind of, you know, going about your routines, uh, you know, driving some in the city when you have to and other times, uh, you, you're now able to listen to some of your favorite shows again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was just, I listen to what's going on in the mornings when I'm up before democracy now, which is often everybody and and, and right, i love yeah. to listen to and i love to listen to leonard's low paid uh, at large and really tune in whenever i can i mean especially when i'm doing distro around the city i mean we work john and i are with the independent another independent media project newspaper and so i go around i do the redistribution um, in the middle of the month between cycles. And that's like, you know, a full day in the car. And I'm listening to BAI the whole time. And I know that I'm not going to hear things that I hear on BAI on any other station. I mean, WNYC has some great programming, but no other station are you going to hear all day something like, you know, tenants on that are down in Flatbush fighting against their landlord. You know, we're bringing you the actual people who are facing, you know, the issues that are themselves very knowledgeable about it, not just other reporters or sort of talking heads. So I think that's what I really appreciate the most about the station. And that is why I try to give so much life to it. So please join me in doing so in the form of money. And seriously, if you're a listener and you can become a buddy, it it really means a lot. $10 a month. I know a lot of us are in fixed incomes but for those of us who aren't ten dollars a month is really not much but it means a lot to the station you can sign up to be a buddy bai buddy in the name of this radio show the independent news hour by calling the station at 212-209-2950 again that's 212-209-2950 and one more time for those in the back who are rushing for their pens it's 212-209-2950 or go straight online to give the number to WBAI.org. That's give numeral two WBAI.org. That's right. Two one two two zero nine two nine five zero or give number two WBAI.org. Help us keep this radio station on the air. So, um, for our, our second segment, uh, we're going to hear from, uh, Kristen Gonzalez. She was elected state senator from, uh, Western Queens, Northern Brooklyn, and parts of uh, Manhattan last year, and uh, member of the Democratic Socialists of America, one of three socialist state senators we now have in New York, and, and um, uh, one of the there's a bunch of battles going on in Albany now. They're in the middle of the their session, uh, hashing out the budget and other deals, and uh, there's fights for good cause eviction uh, to fix the MTA, and also uh, to um, really, uh, revolutionize, uh, the public power sector here in New York and, and, and vastly expand, uh, public power and, and the development of, uh, wind, solar, and geothermal and, and that would not only put New York on a much greener path, but which would, uh, reduce people's, uh, utility bills over time. It wouldn't be reliant on fossil fuels. So I spoke with, um, uh, Kristen Gonzalez recently. And we, we talked about 
kind of how that whole process is going. Uh, we spoke uh, after the state Senate approved the Build Public Renewables Act. Uh, there's still some hurdles to be cleared, but uh, uh, it was an interesting conversation. So we're going to uh, hear from State Senator Kristen uh, Gonzalez, and then we'll be back uh, to for the, the final part of the show. State Senator Kristen Gonzalez, welcome back to the Independent News Hour on 99.5 FM. Always a pleasure to be here, John. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure, too. So let's uh, dive into this. The Build Public Renewables Act has now been passed by the state Senate. Uh, we'll touch on some of the legislative hurdles that still remain in a few minutes. But first, tell us about the good stuff. What do you see as the defining features of this le- legislation? I'm incredibly excited that we were able to pass the Build Public Renewables Act through the Senate this week because it's something that I ran on as, you know, a member of a district that has been deeply affected by climate um, and has suffered at the hands of fossil fuel companies. So if I had to say, you know, or put into a small summary of why BPRA is so significant, it's significant because, yes, it provides a model for publicly owned, publicly operated power and renewable energy, which is great, but it's also a significant victory for all of the people in my district and across the state that have been affected by fossil fuel companies, whether it's through breathing poisoned air, like in Astoria, where we have Asthma Alley, or um, from simply being, you know, near oil spills like Greenpoint in, you know, with Newtown Creek, which has the largest oil spill in the entire country. Um, so it's, it's definitely a win for, for all New Yorkers, um, and feels especially sweet. And, and what will it do for, uh, ratepayers, uh, who have been getting, uh, zapped with, uh, double digit, <laughs> uh, uh, rate increases in recent years from, uh, Con Edison? Yeah. I'm glad you asked that question because this week we had budget hearings. And in addition to passing BPRA, we had a chance to question the commissioner for PSC, which, basically controls whether or not Con Ed or um, LIPA or other power authorities across the state can increase their, their, uh, you know, prices for energy. And what we found in that hearing was because fossil fuels are a finite resource, that pr- the price of, of energy and our bills are going to continue to skyrocket because they're dependent on this finite resource and because of all the geopolitical issues we're seeing today and will continue to see. So, BPRA is more than, you know, just giving the New York Power Authority the ability to build its own renewable energy. It's a way that we're going to counter our rising bills and actually begin to bring our bills down. And that is a real win for working New Yorkers. And why? So why does it bring bills down? Is it because once you set up the infrastructure of renewable energy, the wind and the sun and the geothermal uh the, the price the price yeah becomes it, much lower you, than than digging up and shipping around uh, uh oil and gas yes 100% renewable energy is better for our environment it's cheaper it's better for our wallets and it's what we need to do because we're in a climate crisis and we're not going to see any change until we demand a greener new york and public power and renewable energy is this first step in doing that right and New York has uh, this somewhat overlooked uh, uh, mm-hmm. agency, the, the New York Power Authority, which was right. uh, created by Franklin Roosevelt when he was governor of New York in 1931 and 
Uh, in the post-war era, it built a bunch of hydroelectric dams um, under the guidance of Robert Moses, but it, it's kind of uh, just been uh, 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 not really noticed that much, but it's the largest public power authority in the country, and it seems what y'all want to do is like really ramp it up into uh, uh, a renewable energy uh, juggernaut. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's in the context of having passed, uh, basically it's called the CLCPA. Um, but it is an act that says that by 2030, the majority of our energy in New York state should come from re- renewable sources. And, you know, it's 2023 and we were barely at 4%. So the ability for NIPA, like you said, the largest power authority or one of the largest in the entire country to build its own renewable energy and to do that in a way that's publicly owned, publicly operated and accountable to us is significant in achieving that goal and also approaching it with the urgency that we need, given, again, the climate crisis. And, you know, today it's 60 degrees in Albany. So I think there's no denying that the climate crisis is here. We're living it. Right. Uh, I guess the, these warm winters uh, feel like the upside of the climate crisis, but uh, they, uh, they're they very uh, ominous as well. Uh, um, so uh, with uh, with the the, this, uh, with the BPRA, uh, another feature that's, uh, interesting is, uh, it envisions, a, a, a sort of a more democratic, uh, oversight of our, uh, our power system than what we have now. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, a hundred percent. So again, we have been depending on, you know, public private partnerships, but private companies to, you know, help fuel our renewable energy sources and giving the New York Power Authority the ability to build its own is inherently more democratic and accountable because we as the state legislature and the state legislature being accountable to and, you know, for the most part, (laughs) accountable to the people, that's a direct, that's a direct route. Um, But I really, I really appreciated, you know, what you said as well um, in that this is really part of a longer history from when the New York Power Authority was created. So one thing I talked about in my floor speech when it was first, when we passed it this week is, um, you know, the Power Authority Act, what created NIPA was actually passed in the spring of 1931 by Governor, you know, FDR. And in his campaign, he not only, you know, framed the central theme about public power being around like greed, profit, and the, you know, high cost of energy at the time, but it was about our inability to trust private companies to deliver the energy that we need. And so just like then, we can't trust them today. And that's why, you know, the Build Public Renewables Act, um, adding that power to, to NIPA, right, is, is just so significant and a shift away from, you know, privatization of our energy, but really putting that back and, and saying that power is a public right. We should be able to afford our bills. Honestly, truly keeping the lights on should be a, a human right. And just like housing should be a human right. You know, if housing is a human right, being able to live in a home that has lights on um, that isn't hurting the environment should also be. And so giving giving our, our New York Power Authority that ability to begin building, I think, again, is is more de- more inherently democratic, um, more accountable, and is part of our, our vision for a more you know, democratic socialist future. Right. And speaking of that, I mean, you're now one of three democratic socialists serving in the state Senate. So it, it's no surprise that 
uh, someone like yourself would support this legislation. But it, it it's interesting that, I mean, this isn't about uh, hand, handing out tax breaks to companies to try to get them to do the right thing or improving some regulations, but it, it's about a, a, a really uh, moving the energy uh, sector in New York into public hands. I mean, this is, uh, you know, pretty socialistic and I'm, I'm uh, curious kind of what the mood and the attitude of, uh, or perspective of your colleagues in the democratic caucus is, uh, most of the Democrats in the state Senate do not identify as socialists. So how did they get on board with this? I'd say, you know, it's a combination of factors, but the thing I really want to highlight is the amount of organizing that has gone into the Build Public Renewables Act. This is the result of years of work from activists, from folks who are in frontline communities that are most impacted by climate catastrophes and years of coalition building with labor. So, you know, this is really to the credit of all the activists who have been doing the work. Um, and then that really being seen and felt within Albany, as well as just the undeniable fact that we are in a climate crisis and there is no, there is no, you know, at least here in Albany with, with our democratic conference, there's no questioning or denying that. And I think that has given us the urgency um, and the political will to get even, you know, members who may be from across the democratic spectrum, right. Um, to come together and, and vote to pass this really historic piece of legislation. Right. And, I mean, there was one study that uh, came out, I think, uh, in last year or the year before uh, from the University of Pennsylvania that, that claimed that uh, if fully uh, instituted, uh, BPRA could create 51,000 uh, union jobs. Uh, you, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I that's a critical part. The ability to create union jobs and ensuring that our renewable energy sources are built with union labor. Um, I think that's also what sets the Bill Public Renewables Act apart from the current version we see proposed in the executive budget this year by Governor Hochul. Um, you know, in our version of BPRA, we have, um, you know, really robust labor provisions, including prevailing wage, including project labor agreements, seats on the board of trustees for labor, you know, applications for contractors and subcontractors, um, a just transition fund. So all of these really important labor focused, union job focused provisions, whereas in the executive budget this year, or at least in the one that, you know, Governor Hochul has proposed, those labor protections have been gutted. And so all it really does is fund pre-apprenticeship programs, um, but there are no real labor standards for those projects. And even these funds um, are at the whim of trustees. And whereas we guarantee labor having, you know, seats at the table for those conversations, Mm -hmm. again, in in that budget, it, it does not. So, you know, this is also deeply important to call out because it's a fight right now to ensure that we get our version of BPRA in the final budget. Right. And the goal here is to to get BPRA into the state budget agreement, which is due uh, by March 31st, correct? Yep. It is close. <laughs> it's close coming. Lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think we can do it because I, you know, having spoken to members um, of our conference and, and just our colleagues um, in both 
you know, in both chambers, the Assembly and the Senate, I think we want to build with labor. We want to see strong labor protections. And so I'm optimistic about our ability to not only pass this, but to ensure that it's in that budget on March 31st. Right. Now, speaking of labor, I mean, while there are definitely unions supporting this, the the unions that represent the utility workers uh, that would be most affected by this legislation, uh, they're still on the sidelines. I mean, they're, they're certainly not supporting Governor Hochul's um, proposal, but they haven't come out in support of the BPRA either. Uh, what do you? Yeah, I think I've seen a lot of unions come out and voice support for BPRA, um, but obviously. That what it comes down to is either either way, every union and especially the unions most affected want to see more jobs for their workers. They want to see more funding um, for pre-apprenticeship programs and labor standards are in the best interests of everyone. So, you know, we definitely also haven't had pushback on our end for any of the strong labor language that we've been including. Right. But I, I understand one of their main objections is that uh, it if they if we expand uh, the footprint of, of the New York Power Authority and they become public, essentially public sector workers, they would be covered by the Taylor law, the, uh, the draconian law uh, from 1967 that forbids public sector workers to uh, be able to strike in the state of New York. And, and, and they feel like they would lose a lot of their uh, bargaining power as labor unions. Uh, uh, have you had conversations with the unions about this? How, how do you address that concern? You know, I've been working with a lot of the organizers who wrote this bill, who have been responsible for passing it through. Um, and I would, you know, and even yesterday when, or not yesterday, or this week when, when Senator Parker was arguing, um, against Republicans for this bill, you know, we, we called out the importance of labor and having labor standards. So I don't want to speak for any, any union or for any of the organizers who have been having those conversations, but I know that there really has been a concerted effort to, to coalition build and that that coalition has still been strong and and there are many unions that would benefit that are in support of this bill and ultimately you know we what we've seen on on the flip side is that we can't trust private companies to give us quality jobs or to do anything that is an other other than maximizing their own profit so you know really there is a alignment in the idea that when we have democratically owned, democratically operated um, infrastructure that unions do benefit, workers do benefit, and we're not doing things just to maximize profit, but we're doing things to improve our state, improve our future, protect our, our clean air, our, our, you know, um, our environment, and also to give folks generations of, of well-paying um, jobs so that, you know, we don't have to strike against these evil companies that have been completely exploiting labor for years, including fossil fuel companies. Right. And, and um, so uh, the the state Senate passed uh, the BPRA last year as well. And then it, it, it died in the in the state assembly. Uh, the Speaker Carl Heastie uh, refused to bring it up for a vote. Uh, what's your sense of how, how this could uh, might go differently this year and that this doesn't end up being just a, a one house uh, measure that that dies in the other house. 
Yeah, I certainly, certainly hear that um, concern because it was really disappointing last year when we were so close to the finish line. We had the votes, but it wasn't brought to the floor in the assembly. And we've learned from that. And now that we've gotten, gotten it passed through the Senate, the organizing continues to get it passed through the assembly. And because we've been having this conversation for years now, we're feeling much more optimistic this year. Right. And and one of the things that was really interesting in the debate last year uh, when it made it to the assembly and and, and uh, the corporate forces that didn't want this, uh, you know, really uh, surfaced. Uh, one of them was uh, the, the 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 solar uh, power uh, industry. Uh, they lobbied against it uh, because they saw, you know, NIPA as being a powerful competition. And I remember seeing a quote from a lobbyist for the solar power industry saying, you know, if if this goes public. Uh, they're going to be able to do so much more and, and we won't be able to, to keep up with the, with the public, uh, uh, option here. And we'll be, we'll be left behind. I, it, I found that revealing about, um, yeah, I what's think going on. says a lot about how they're viewing this. We, we're viewing it as a climate crisis that we need to address and we're not viewing it with the lens of, uh, oh boy, this is a threat to my bottom line. <laughs> right. Well, uh, so last last question, how can uh, people get involved and, and uh, help with this uh, uh, push to get the Build Public Renewables Act uh, enacted in its uh, full glory? I would say now's the time to join us, join in organizing efforts around it. Um, BPRA is now part of a larger suite of bills that... Um, the Democratic Socialists of America, their New York chapter, but also other organizations like Working Families Party have been a part of, and and that's the Invest in Our New York package, okay. and that that also known as IONI, and that package of bills not only includes the climate bills that we need, but includes essential um, revenue bills that tax the rich, that tax corporations, that ensure that we're increasing our state budget as we've seen in past years. When we successfully tax, tax the rich, we've been able to um, have a surplus in the budget and we're expected to have one again this year. So, you know, get involved with the larger coalition. There are many organizations doing the work. You can do, you can go on Ioni's website or uh, DSA's website um, to find out more information. And then the great part about that means is that we're not only fighting for BPRA, but we're also fighting for all of the other things that we need, like fix the MTA, like um, good cause eviction and housing protections and so much more to that. So that working New Yorkers, all of us can, can not only just survive, but truly thrive. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for now. State Senator Kristen Gonzalez, thank you for joining us again on WBAI Radio. Thank you so much for having me, John. Always a pleasure. You Bye-bye. And that was State Senator Kristen Gonzalez in a pre-recorded interview speaking with the Independent News Hour about the Build Public Renewables Act. Uh, to learn more about the campaign, uh, to pass a BPRA and other progressive initiatives in the state legislature. Uh, it's going to be taking place over the next six weeks. You can go to investinrny.org. That's investinrny.org. And that wraps it up today's show. Uh, thanks to uh, Reggie Johnson, our board operator. And we'll be back same time next week. Amba, what's our uh, musical uh, outro here? We're going to listen to Central Park West by Pharaoh Sanders with Stafford James William Henderson and a question Wainwright. Sorry, that's Stafford James 
Kala, William Henderson, and Akashtan Wainwright. All right, here we go. Thank you. 